Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson. Welcome to The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo, the crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me each week on The Crime Couch for a rollicking, intriguing tale. It'll be one heck of a journey. Phil Hubbard is a former police fire and bomb scene examiner. He was in the job over 40 years and joined as a cadet. Phil's worked in the crime cars, drug squad, arson squad and the homicide squad before instructing at DTS and finishing at St Kilda CIU. We're sitting in Phil's office on a grey Melbourne spring day. Hi Phil, thanks very much for sitting with me on the crime couch. Hi Rochelle, pleasure to be here. Why did you become a policeman, Phil? Long story, Um, I lived in Fiji as a child in Suva. Uh, I met a police officer there through my father. I was only a primary school child at the time. When we returned to Melbourne, I used to go to the VFA football a lot. Saw a lot of police working the VFA football. Uh, Saw a rather large blue between a few uh, spectators. The police uh, getting involved and placing him in the back of the divvy van. Looked like fairly good fun. And uh, then 1973, uh, VFL football record had combined your sporting career with Victoria Police. And being very keen on sports, I thought that'll probably work out okay. And a job that interested me because of the you're being outdoors not stuck behind a desk all the time albeit that I was aware that there was a fair bit of indoor watch house reception type work as well and there was the ability to do a lot of variation within the police force for detective investigation which interested me Uh, mounted branch as well if you wanted to do that search and rescue so many different aspects to Victoria Police so um, I didn't hesitate to put in an application in 1973, late, late 1973, and then early 74, I received a notification to sit for an exam at the end of 1974, and I commenced in February 1975 at the old police depot uh, there for a few months, and then as a police cadet, and then we all moved to uh, the Spencer Street, the old Savoy, and out to Waverley, graduated, worked at South Melbourne, and uh, progressed through there into the CIB at uh, Footscray and so on. So had a great time, loved the job. Phil, your expertise is really in fire and bomb scene investigation. Now they're really specific areas. What led you into those areas? My first introduction into arson was uh, when I was at Footscray CI, I processed an offender for arson, which was a fairly decent job. There was a scout hall at the top end of Barclay Street in Footscray that was burnt to the ground. I worked with a fairly senior detective at the time, Greg Patterson, and uh, he and I worked all day, right from 7 o'clock in the morning right through to about 10 o'clock at night, going through the processes of uh, our initial action. And uh, I was educated on that day by a arson chemist about how fire progressed through a building, uh, burn patterns, and it was quite fascinating. 
we were successful in making the arrest. And from then on, uh, it was an area that I was interested in. So I thought I'd transfer there eventually. Um, not at that time, but I thought it's something that was in the back of my mind and uh, it did interest me. And uh, I was fortunate enough, I got appointed to the arson squad in January 1991 and the officer in charge was Bruce Watt and Cole Cordes and we had a, a great office and the expertise that was developed by all the detectives at the arson squad was second to none. Phil, by examining a crime fire scene, how can you tell if a fire has been deliberately lit? Obviously, you've got the expertise, but how do you know straight off? Really, it's a process of elimination. It's important to stand back um, away from the scene just to have a look at the burn damage from an external point of view. Uh, you work your way around to the least amount of damage to the most severe amount of damage while you're outside. It gives you a little bit of a, an indicator. Uh, and then once you're inside, you have a look at the way the fires progress through the premises. And again, it's uh, least amount of damage to the most amount of damage. Now, that's one aspect. However, you've really got to look at now, at the identify the point of origin. So once you've identified that, you've got to uh, get, sift through the, the charred remains, work out if it's an electrical uh, fire or not. If there's uh, no sign of any electrical device, you're really looking at something. Um, smell, often you can smell accelerants through the place, but you really got to be mindful of various materials that do uh, put off a, a similar type of fragrance. So... Um, yeah, so it's a process elimination and looking at um, what is really at the point of origin. And uh, a lot of times you're, you're removing carpet or you can see burn patterns in the floor that indicate a trailer pattern as well, uh, often leading out towards the front door. Um, yeah, aspects like that. In addition, though, Victoria Police are very fortunate to have the Forensic Science Lab as well, um, qualified forensic scientists that... Uh, specialise in arson scene examination as well. So together with, uh, with the crew, uh, that's how we, we generally identify uh, the point of origin and the actual cause of the fire. Is that the same with, uh, say, a bomb investigation? Are there any telltale signs when you get to a scene that you can automatically go, oh, yes, that's definitely been a bomb? Yeah, there's two types of explosions, really. Uh, one's a dispersed explosion, which is a vapour explosion caused by an accelerant, uh, and that pushes items out, uh, as opposed to a concentrated explosion, which is an improvised explosive device where you've got cratering, fragmentation and ripping and tearing, that type of effect. So, uh, And that uh, is something there well, consistent with the Russell Street bombing. In my second book, Phil, which was called Inside Their Minds, I interviewed Peter Burgess. Now, Peter Burgess is a New South Wales serial arsonist. And one of the things I recall is when I interviewed him and I interviewed him at his, at his uh, apartment, I was struck by how young and inexperienced he was. Um, the forensic psychologist Ian Joblin, who I also wrote the book with, said arsonists tend to be young males who are socially inadequate and they commit their crimes alone. He said they're unable to express their frustration or aggression, so instead they light a fire. Now, 
Is that your experience when you've dealt with arsonists, Phil? Is probably 100% spot on, actually, in my mind. Um, I had a similar one down the Mornington Peninsula in the uh, 90s, in the early 90s. Uh, there was a number of houses that were set on fire. Um, volunteer firefighter was the offender um, and very consistent of what you were just talking about. And that's the really interesting thing because uh, that's the same with this uh, individual, Peter Burgess. He was a, a volunteer firefighter with the RFS and he decided to go out into the bush on his mountain bike, use an incendiary device, and he'd light the fire, and then he'd go to the nearby tele telephone booth because he didn't have a mobile phone, and he would basically ring the authorities and then jump on the fire truck and actually put out the fire that he started. Like, any sorts of similar experiences you had with arsonists? Well, the one down the Mornington Peninsula was similar. He would remain, he'd light a fire, remain inside the scene to the uh, nth degree and leave the premises just as it's uh, approaching him. He received some burn injuries on one occasion. He was interviewed by the local police in that initial stage uh, and we ended up taking over the investigation. Eventually we were able to link him to a number of fires down there and he was charged with, one of them was about a, a nearly a $500,000 house fire. Uh, and he, he was uh, sentenced to imprisonment as a result of that. One of the other crews at the arson squad uh, down Geelong Way, there was a, a CFA firefighter down there. He'd go out and light the fires and he'd call in the fires so that he'd jump on the truck and, and put them out. Very similar. Uh, that was Gary, Gary Arnold's crew investigated those and he... Gary's a resident of down that way, so his crew stayed down there and uh, they put a lot of time and effort into uh, identifying him and linking him to all the other fires. Uh, he, when they executed the search warrant, they had, um, he had a number of uh, clothing items from females uh, in his possession as well, so things like that. Yeah, they tend to be serial offenders. That's one of the things I've noticed when I've looked at a couple of cases. Now, one job involving an explosion that you investigated, Phil, at a grocery store in Laverton uh, was during January 1995. Now, that job really stuck with you, uh, didn't it? I mean, what, uh, what do you remember and recall about that job? Yeah, we were called out on New Year's Day 1995, around about two o'clock. After receiving the call from the night shift detective inspector, I made sure that the scene was secured. Um, there was police members en route to hospital as well, importantly to retrieve any clothing or remains of clothing in view that it was a, a fire-related matter. And the premises had been extensively damaged by fire. So at that point, uh, notified the rest of the crew members and we turned out to the scene at uh, Railway Crescent in Laverton. And it was a grocery store. And that was a scene of an explosion. So that was a vapour explosion as a result of petrol poured through the premises. I th my view was the offender remained in the scene for a fairly lengthy time. The vapours uh, were building up. And when he ignited the, the petrol that he poured around, hence the explosion. And that put So when you got there, did you determine that straight away or did that? eventuate that you realised that he'd done, he'd actually been the person who lit the fire? Pretty much. Uh, look, we probably had 
previous experience, well, we did actually have previous experience with similar fires with vapour explosions. We're aware that that does occur. And you get the right temperature range and tends to happen more in the warmer months of the year mm-hmm. and depends on how long they they remain at the scene when they're pouring the petrol around, the vapours build up as soon as they ignite the match. And if it's a confined area as well, as soon as they light the match or the cigarette lighter, uh, you'll get that explosive effect. And it pushes items out. The architrave around the front double doors were pushed out onto the footpath there was numerous items from the shop pushed out onto the railway crescent. Mm-hmm. And railway crescent's a fairly wide top of a road, and there was debris right across the other side. So it was a fairly big range where the scene was. Mm. So, yeah, I de- identified it fairly well straight away. Mm. Um, but he also, didn't he actually make an appearance at the local police station in a rather unusual way? Correct. He, uh, he had a co-offender uh, in a car out the front, or probably parked down just a couple of doors down. Um, he was, managed to uh, get into the vehicle, and they went down Blackshaw's Road because we found blood down there. They obviously stopped. He removed some burnt clothing, which is a shirt, which we recovered later. Uh, he turned up at the police station, and fortunately the watch house keeper there at the time was able to take a few photographs of him, uh, still smouldering. Um, what so, his clothes were still smouldering. Yeah, he had. Uh, they they identified uh, sp- smoke coming from around his hair, around his head area. Um, so, was that a bit of a giveaway? Was that a bit of a giveaway? Well, you know, he's obviously going to account for his uh, burn injuries, which I'll go through very shortly. Uh, the ambulance was called straight away. Ambulance conveyed him to the Alfred Hospital. So uh, that's hence we, we sent police members there to retrieve the clothing mm. because you can get identify accelerant, you know, the petrol from the clothing, mm. uh, albeit there wasn't a lot of the clothing left. And that why, that's why it was quite important to locate that. We did a, we did a trace. What, it, what route would you take from the railway crescent scene to the police station so we covered all that we located the shirt uh that had traces of of an accelerant on it which was the petrol um shoes things like that so that's what we look at and it's interesting isn't it because that's what the homicide squad as you would no doubt know say that every contact leaves a trace and is that the same in a fire investigation absolutely yeah it's uh 100 correct on that one how did you know that it was a vapour explosion, Phil? Generally, just from looking at the scene, items are pushed out. Um, and obviously, there was reports of a, of a loud explosion. And just having a look at the scene, you could, you could see the architrave around the double doors pushed out. A uh, lot of debris across the road that emanated from the shop. Uh, grocery items. So when we do the scene examination, we also having a look, okay, it's a business, so is it a financial motive fire? Or is it someone that's come in to torch the place because of a, a rival opposition? Um, or is it straight out uh, damage motive? Whatever the case may be. So we're going to look at that. So we look at all elements. Now, it's important that we look at, uh, we do a, basically a stock take. What's in the, in the premises at the time? And we check that with his stock records, uh, who does he own, owe money to? 
uh, and we go through those businesses and what we found out, he was in debt to quite a number of people or, or businesses that were supplying him with goods. Mm-hmm. Also, what we did, we did a, a house-to-house canvas around about a, a kilometre radius. So we deployed various police members into that. We were involved with that as well. And we identified a witness who said, New Year's Eve, they saw the owner uh, removing items from the grocery store into the back of a uh, vehicle, which is a a Holden Commodore. So, of course, we're going to look at all the associates that uh, he has, our our suspect, who's our injured person in hospital, who's his associates. Uh, So we ended up rounding all those up, looking for this particular vehicle. We ended up getting some intel that, suggested he also lived at another place he actually had a bedroom in the in the shop mm-hmm. which was around about the middle part of the shop it was a p- petition bedroom so mm-hmm. and that's important as well which i'm going to talk about later but he um was also sleeping in another house in nearby La- uh, altona north so we executed a search warrant located quite a number of stock items from the shop mm-hmm. that he'd placed in that house uh, to be out of the uh, the premises probably for later uh uh, purposes. So how important is it to have, say, that eyewitness that you located? Is that a crucial part of the fire investigation as well? Yeah, circumstantial evidence. So you, you, you obtain a statement from them and they indicate that they've seen the owner removing items from the premises. We do a stock take. Uh, he claims that there's X amount of stock in there. What we find out, because he's of the view that a lot of the items going to be burnt, destroyed by fire. So we can have a look at all that. The the shelving was very sparse of, of items. Mm-hmm. So Well, because it probably is that eyewitness said he removed a lot of them. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, there's a lot of, lot of items removed. But also the business was not profitable as well. So uh, we went through all the financials. That's another element of it. And, and that all points to circumstantial evidence. So we've got him at the scene as well. So he gave us a, a version of events. We were able to interview him initially at the Alfred Hospital at, mm-hmm. at some stage and uh, did a tape-recorded interview there, and he claimed that uh, he was at inside the bedroom area of the shop, heard a noise, and the only way that he was able to escape the premises was to run through the fire. Pretty farcical sort of a story, but he's still got to uh, eliminate his version of events and uh, shore up uh, what we believe actually occurred. So mm-hmm. um, just so for corroboration purposes. So we got that story and we waited probably nearly three weeks before he was released from hospital, uh, arrested him on release, and he took him back to the um, arson squad office, which is at St Kilda Road in those days, and conducted a taped interview. And he was agreeable to, to participate in a reenactment. Mm-hmm. So we took him to the scene um, able to access the, the shop again and he went through the whole process and he claimed that he, he supported his initial version that he was in the bedroom, heard a noise and the only escape was to run through the fire and that's how he claims he received his burn injuries. Mm-hmm. Now, our arson chemist uh, examined him and did a forensic procedure, examined him at the uh, hospital and identified that he would have been in a crouched position when he received his burn injury. So it's consistent with him igniting the uh, the accelerant. So in other words, the chemist was able to determine that the injuries he sustained 
it virtually meant that he'd it showed that he'd lit the actual fire. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was that was crucial. Um, the arson chemist gave that evidence at the criminal trial. What else? And, and also, I understand that he made an interesting appearance in court. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, after the trial commenced, he failed to appear. The judge issued a bench warrant. Went, we went round and uh, re-arrested him on the uh, on the bench warrant, and he refused to to come. So we had to use a little bit of force, and he refused to. Uh, change out of his pajamas and dressing gown, and uh, we we gave him the opportunity to to get dressed and present himself in front of the judge in a reasonable sort of a appearance, you might say. So he refused. So off he went to uh, the county court in a pair of pajamas and dressing gown. So, so what did the magistrate? Uh, what did the magistrate? Did the magistrate make any comment about that, Phil? Oh, look. Yeah, from memory, there was there was some comment, but the defence barrister said, "Look, yeah, we'll we'll continue on and proceed." So, look, just another element with that reenactment that we did. Mm-hmm. When we examined the scene, there was uh, a door leading from a, a back kitchen area that had smoke deposits or sooting on it, which mm-hmm. was open at the time of the fire. That was blatantly obvious from examination of the scene. Uh, also, the the rear door was just a, a latch to unlock and uh, exit. So they were some of the important parts that you've really got to note. There was another uh, secondary scene in that back kitchen area where accelerant was poured on some chairs, tried to ignite that. It wasn't really successful in view of the uh, the material uh, concrete area at the back as well. So that was a, a secondary seat of fire. Um, so... If he claims that he heard a noise and saw fire inside the premises, he could have quite easily uh, went go out through that uh, middle door, which he claimed was shut, and also the rear door, which he claimed was locked. So it was quite accessible to exit via the uh, the rear rear yard. It's really interesting all the factors that make up the brief of evidence, you know, in an arson investigation. Um, Phil, you were also at DTS training and you trained other members in arson investigation. How important is it to contain that initial crime scene and to preserve that when you get there? Look, it's vital. You've really got to make sure that the scene is in its most natural state. Look, it's fine if if it's been disturbed by, like we have fire brigade members going through fire scenes, Mm. but we get an account from them. They explain exactly what they've done. So we're quite understanding of that and even if uh you know there's some shoe impressions we have a look at their their um footwear which are all pretty consistent so um long as we're aware of it that's fine if there's anyone that's disturbed parts of the scene even with some homicide scenes where people have rendered uh medical assistance in the initial stages you know you've got to identify that and you can account for it so long as you're aware of it but you've got to ask the questions phil You've had, you know, over 42 years in the job. Now, how do you view your life in the job now? Um, look, look, looking back, I had a great time. Um, it was like a hobby. Uh, you never really had those days where, oh, gee, I've got to go to work. Um, admittedly, the, the last 18 months or so, there was a, a bit of 
pressure on, I suppose, for different aspects. Um, but overall, I really thoroughly enjoyed the uh, the career that I that I chose. Uh, never a, a, a dull moment. Always entertaining. Um, the thrill of the chase, and uh, look, the last probably eleven and a half years running St Kilda CI, you, you're in charge of the uh, the office. We had great investigators there. Their local knowledge for St Kilda was was second to none. Mm. We used to do a lot of uh, various operations. We had get a rooming house operations that uh, resulted in uh, arrests, you know, ap- uh, warrants of apprehension that were uh, executed. So identifying serial offenders that moved in from other areas. We had offenders from Perth that came over and stayed in the Gatwick before it was obviously renovated. Um, so the Gatwick was a, a rooming house. We had one in Little Grey, or two in Little Grey Street. We used to go through those places as well. So a lot of times that resulted in a, in a reduction of crime. So that was quite beneficial and good to see. And um, yeah, it was great to be involved with that. Is there anything now that you miss about the job? Probably some of the, uh, the the camaraderie we had, but you know I've got so many external interests anyway. So um, uh, you know I keep myself sort of busy and active with a various sport that I do. So yeah, everything's pretty good at the moment. What do you think? Finally, could today's police members learn from someone such as you with a lot of specialist skills? Look, it's really. Uh, I'm a firm believer you've got to have specialists. Uh, crime squads really have that. They underpin that type of uh, skill set. It's great that they can go to a scene. They know exactly what the processes are. The divisional detectives always rate as all-rounders. They can do generally everything. Mm. Um, but for you know really major crimes such as homicide, serious armed um, robberies, jobs like that, uh, arson squad type work, explosives, you've got to have that specialist area. Well, Phil, thank you very much for your time today and for sitting with me on the Crime Couch. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson and I look forward to your company next time on the Crime Couch.